Welcome to Cultural Technologies. I'm Bernard Dionysus Gagan. Uh, today's episode is another uh, bootleg recording. This one of film historian Tom Gunning speaking uh, in June 2010 at the Bauhaus University uh, in Weimar, Germany. And his talk is entitled Inventing the Moving Image and Then Forgetting It. This was a keynote lecture uh, for a workshop entitled On the Periphery of Cinema, Practices, Materials, Objects. Uh, this event was organized by Katja Müller-Heller and Alina J. Williams. Uh, also, um, this, uh, this recording has two kind of bonuses. One is an introduction by Alina. Alina is an art historian, as well as a response by Volker Pontenberg, who is a film theorist working at uh, Bauhaus University. <coughs> uh, there's relatively little uh, work of Volker's in English, as far as I know, so I think having his response is a real bonus. Um, this episode is essentially a, a partner to the last episode, which was an interview with Petra Loeffler on the history of distraction. <clears throat> and to briefly elaborate, uh, you know, Tom Gunning, among other things, is known for uh, rethinking the history of so-called early cinema or primitive cinema, whatever you want to call it, uh, and suggesting that we, we, we consider it in regard to a wide range of popular and vernacular um, forms of entertainment, particularly of the 19th and early 20th century. So we're talking here about World's Fairs and uh, vaudeville and even things like um, the detective story, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and it seems to me that Petra's work uh, is, among other things, making an intervention and developing a kind of dialogue with the type of questions Tom Gunning suggested we pose about the early history of the moving image and how it belonged to something like modernity. Uh, in this lecture you're going to hear now, um, he elaborates on some of those themes, but he also does a real kind of deep history of the moving image going back to something like the 15th or 16th uh, century. Um, also drawing a lot on questions of uh, epistemology, history of science, history of techniques, a little bit of theology, and many other topics. So, uh, number one, I encourage you to download the episode with Petra and listen to that uh, to sort of enrich, the, the two episodes enrich one another. Uh, and number two, um, I hope you do go ahead and listen to this episode, of course. Um, so, uh, happy listening. Bye-bye. So, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Tom Gunning who will be giving us a talk on um, his more recent work on motion and the history of motion. Um, the title is, has it changed actually since our... <laughs> well, I'm, 
Uh, that's a good question. I, I still like the title. I'm not sure it's relevant, but I still like it. <laughs> so it's uh, inventing the history of cinema and then forgetting it. <laughs> inventing the moving image yeah, okay. and then forgetting it. And then yes. forgetting it. Um, and so uh, Tom Gunning, just for those of you who are new to the room, um, uh, he is a professor of art history and cinema and media studies at Chicago University of Chicago. Um, he's here as a senior fellow at the Ikaka M in Weimar, uh, and he is here uh, on loan to us, and we're very happy that he can participate in our workshop, um, which is in general about the, the, um, the peripheries of cinema. For this reason, we have asked uh, Volker Pattenberg, the junior professor also at the Ikaka M, if he would be interested to provide a response to Tom Gunning's paper tonight. And so after uh, Tom gives his lecture, then Volker Pattenberg will give a response of about 10, 15 minutes. Then we'll have a moment for a few questions, and then we'll go to um, the rest of the evening from now on. So I don't want to um, go too far into the direction I already went earlier uh, this afternoon. So I would like to hand the floor to Tom Gunning, and thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me and uh, for, uh, as I've said, being patient as I slowly began to realize that everything in Weimar is not the same thing and that there were several events going on, which was not clear to me at first, but I'm happy this all worked out and uh, thank everybody for helping me. Um, the talk I'm going to give is part of a work I'm trying to do on the history and, and very definitely the invention, but the invention understood very broadly uh, of the moving image and, uh, and the way that I think, in fact, the term about forgetting is the way that I think this has not been uh, front and center uh, in film studies for a long time. In some ways, obviously, uh, Deleuze brought it up again, although um, I think somewhat brought it up to dismiss it. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, it's the sense of redressing uh, a, a kind of sense of forgetting, and even as I claimed last night in my lecture, a kind of sense of repressing uh, of the issue of, of motion. Uh, I have to admit, though, being here in Weimar for the last few months, I began to really understand what Nietzsche meant about Germans needing to know how to forget. Uh, I mean, I've never been in some place where there's so much history. It's amazing. Uh, so um, maybe forgetting is part of what I'm going to talk about as well. <laughs> anyway, my, I start with a kind of uh, well-known quote. And if you know the moment that it comes from, it's, that is also significant. It's from Shakespeare. It's The Winter's Tale. And uh, the quote is, If this be magic... Let it be an art lawful as eating. In Frank Norris's novel McTeague, which I imagine many of you know, is also the basis for Eric von Stroheim's great film, to my mind the greatest film that's an adaptation of a novel, I mean quad adaptation, uh, Greed, which we've got to steal from here. In Frank Norris's novel McTeague, which was published in 1899, the protagonist Mac who's the curly-haired guy, uh, takes his fiancée, Trina, this is an image uh, of the wedding, actually, 
and her German immigrant mother, Mrs. Siete, who unfortunately isn't in this image, although his father uh, is there on the far right, and you can see his kind of Germanic cousins and uh, 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 brothers-in-laws and so on there. Uh, anyway, uh, coming back, uh, takes um, Trina and her German immigrant mother, Mrs. Siete, to see a variety show. The bill offers, quote, musical wonders, acrobats, lightning artists, ventriloquists, and last of all, the feature of the evening, the crowning scientific achievement of the 19th century, the kinetoscope, Edison's latest wonder. And then quoting from the description of that screening. The kinetoscope fairly took their breaths away. What would they do next? Observed Trina in amazement. Ain't that wonderful, Mac? McTeague was awestruck. Look at that horse move his head, he cried excitedly, quite carried away. Look at the cable car coming and the man going across the street. See, here comes a truck. Well, I never in all my life. What would Marcus say to this? It's all a trick, exclaimed Mrs. Siepe with sudden conviction. I ain't no fool. That's nothing but a trick. Well, of course, Mama, exclaimed Trina. It's, but Mrs. Sepe put her head in the air. I'm too old to be fooled, she persisted. It's a trick. Nothing more could be got out of her than this. Although this is, of course, a fictional account, this description of an early reception of motion pictures written soon after films were first shown publicly in the U.S. reveals the disparate ways projected images could be understood when they first appeared, ways that are often quite different from the later legendary accounts that describe naive audiences mistaking moving images for reality and panicked the image of a locomotive, or in this case a motor car, charging the screen and either fainting or fleeing the theater. The young couple instead respond with delight, amazed at the uncommon spectacle of everyday movement projected on the screen and welcoming it as part of modern technological progress. Representing both the old world and an older generation, Mrs. Siepe, however, doesn't play the role we might expect. A naive and credulous viewer who ducks behind her seat to avoid the oncoming streetcar. Instead, Norris contrasts her stubborn skepticism with the younger generation's happy participation. She doesn't take the film image for either a naive reality or a scientific marvel, but proclaims it nothing but a trick. Now, a long cultural tradition associated motion pictures with magic tricks and illusions. The kinetoscope seemed to some viewers to be another version of an old trick. This tradition begins, in fact, centuries before Edison in the relation that cinema owes to natural magic. Representative of this tradition, Guillaume Baptista de la Porta's book Natural Magic from 1558 deals with the secrets within creation, the hidden forces that regulate nature and the ways magicians can control or manipulate them through a knowledge of their virtues. It also deals with optical devices, mirrors and the camera obscura, the direct ancestors, at least according to some accounts, of motion pictures. The great paradigm shift from magic to science as ways to understand and control the world 
emerged gradually during the 16th and 17th centuries, and discoveries during this period often seemed to straddle magical and scientific explanations. A transformation took place involving new models for the causal powers operating in the universe, with a shift away from the power and rhetoric of images. Michel Foucault beautifully describes the poetic logic of occult resemblances that defined natural magic as a system of analogies and similarities. This is an illustration from Robert Flood's uh, system, which compares the universe actually to uh, harmonics and music. But going back to quoting uh, Foucault, uh, up to the end of the 16th century, resemblance played a constructive role in the knowledge of Western culture. The universe was folded in upon itself. The earth echoing the sky, faces seeing themselves reflected in the stars, and plants holding within their stems the secrets that were of use to man. Natural magic reads and uses this hierarchical system of resemblances in all its complexity, tracing its paths of sympathy and antipathy, influences descending from the stars, which endow all earthly things with a heavenly aspect, and the means by which to draw forth nature's hidden powers and mutual affinities. The universe therefore composed a vast poem, and a magician's knowledge made him the master of its rhetoric, the decoder of its tropes and metaphors. Natural magic took the form of a cosmic game of hide-and-seek, in which virtues tucked away in the multiple forms of creation must be deciphered and put to use, occupying a liminal space between archaic systems of magic and the modern pursuit of technical knowledge. Natural magic provided the context from which the modern devices of wonder and especially optical devices emerged. This unique intellectual constellation combined a magical investment in the power of images and resemblances with a Renaissance fascination with technology and instruments of the imagination. The devices invented by and used by natural magic demonstrated the analogies and allegories on which this system was based. The Jesuit priest Athenaeus uh, Kircher, 1601-1680, to often called the last man who knew everything, <laughs> maintained the worldview of natural magic in a century when it was being challenged by new scientific methods of observation. His collection, and this is a picture of its museum in Rome, of such devices in his private museum in the College of Rome, and descriptions of their marvelous workings in his many works on natural magic, provide a vivid view of an era in which technology seemed poised between modern mechanics and deliberate thaumaturgy. Kircher's devices held their own secrets, consciously employing technology or the tricks of mechanics to baffle and amaze. The optical devices that film historians have dragooned into the genealogy of the cinema, especially those involving projection, such as the magic lantern, which Kircher was the first to describe and to illustrate. He's often accredited incorrectly with inventing it. 
Uh, but he did publicize it. Uh, these devices originally debuted as visual wonders displayed by traveling mountebanks and were described in the works of Delaporta and Kircher. Natural magicians often make impossibly exaggerated claims for their optical wonders. Mirrors that bounce reflected messages off the moon or set distant ships afire. Since their purposes remain primarily rhetorical or allegorical, hyperbole hardly seemed out of place. Contrasting attitude towards the secrets of nature separate the natural magician from the Enlightenment-era scientist or natural philosopher. The natural magician is in on nature's secrets and still holds them close, as if reluctant to reveal them completely, just as stage magicians of the later era will guard the secrets of their individual tricks. The scientist, of course, in contrast, delights in dissolving secrets by discovering the principles underlying them and demonstrating those principles for all to see. The natural magician did not shun tricks and deceptions, including the mechanics of their devices, as historians of scientific instrument Thomas Hankins and Robert Silverman demonstrate in their discussion of Kircher's device, the sunflower clock. Now this device supposedly told the time of day because it was powered by the seed of a heliotrope, the flower whose orientation follows the track of the sun during its diurnal course. According to natural magic, the seed of the flower held the virtue of this inherent attraction to the sun. Therefore, its natural movement could be used to power a clock by floating a seed on a ball of wax in water, which then turned following the sun, even when indoors, away from its direct rays. Kircher's device was widely exhibited and observed or commented on by key figures in the scientific enlightenment, such as Galileo and Descartes. Descartes' skeptical reaction suspected Kircher of trickery. And he wrote to Christian Huygens, uh, who, incidentally, is likely to be the actual inventor of the magic lantern, um, but uh, didn't particularly have Kircher's taste for publicity. Uh, Descartes' letter to Huygens said, the Jesuit has a lot of tricks. He's more charlatan than savant. (laughs) Galileo felt Kircher's device was actually a deceptive artifice, which operated through a concealed magnet attached to a hidden clock mechanism, which supplied the actual motion. And in fact, he hit on the solution. Kircher's clock was moved, not through a natural attraction embodied in the virtue of the plant, but by a concealed magnet powered by the clockwork machine. But to explain the clock through magnetism, was simply, in Kircher's mind particularly, to invoke an even deeper secret of nature and attribute the power to an unexplained, and at that point, to a large degree, still undefined, magnetic force that permeated the universe. But were Kircher and the other proponents of natural magic simply charlatans, and their devices, therefore, nothing but a trick? Well, from a later perspective, undoubtedly, As Hankins and Silverman put it, quote, the natural magician reveled in his ability to trick the senses of his audience and to conceal the causes of the effects he produced 
and he did it with instruments, unquote. Kircher and Delaporta employed their devices to very different ends than the later scientific instruments of investigation and measurement. Hankins and Silverman draw the contrast nicely. Quote, Kircher's instrument composed analogies to nature. They mimic nature rather than test or probe it, unquote. The sunflower clock, we can say, acted out the flow of sympathies through the universe from heavenly bodies to plants to the human universe and to the measurement of time. Kircher hid his magnet to his mind much as the creator hid the occult forces of attraction throughout the universe. The ultimate trickster then was the creator himself. Only his tricks, of course, are impenetrable mysteries, not deceptions. All movement, Kircher claims, come from him. The human artificer simply imitates the creator. The universe consists of a chain of movements, all of which lead back to the ultimate mystery of the creator, the unmoved mover. So who cares if the human artificer monkeys around a bit and gives it a little shove along the way? The system that the devices of natural magic demonstrated remained rhetorical, providing analogies rather than explanations in the modern sense. Movement itself is an occult property in its origin and then becomes part of the orderly mechanics of beings. For Descartes and Galileo, to stop with such a supernatural explanation was mystification. Descartes theorized the magnet itself in terms of a mechanical flow of particles, a system of orderly motion, explainable in mechanical terms, rather than as an imitation of the deity. But Kircher and Delaporta were primarily showmen, displaying rather than explaining the mysteries of creation in vivid and dramatic form. Kircher's treatment of what he called the great art of light and shadow usually forms the first chapter in any archaeology of the cinema unless a discussion of Delaporta's camera obscura, which we see illustrated here, and the use of lenses precedes it. And Kircher is primarily referenced for the discussion of the, the magic lantern. Here actually is the drawings that were discovered much later that Huygens did of uh, an um, animated skeleton slide uh, that could be used in the magic lantern. Um, even this projected image of the magic lantern although entirely explainable in terms of the optics of lenses and lights, continued to carry magical associations. The very name, Magic Lantern. As Hankins and Silverman put it, it, quote, retained its association with natural magic longer than most instruments of the 17th century, unquote. And its light-formed images still haunt our ontological imagination. Are they shadow or substance? Della Porter, Porta and Kircher's fascination with mirrors reflect the rhetoric of this worldview where, as Foucault says, everything folds in and resembles everything else. This circularity, like the great circuit of movement from human artificer to unmoved mover that Kircher claims propels his sunflower clock, opposes the linear causality that the Enlightenment pursued. 
models of movement in scientific thought will lay out an entirely different trajectory. The allegorical unity of the cosmos and its secrets, traced in the tropes and similes that the creator concealed within the complexities of creation, did not survive to guide enlightenment science, which sought material causes and mechanical effects rather than visual analogies. Although the process, of course, is, is gradual. I mean, we all are aware that Newton spent decades dealing with alchemy and that figures like Kepler are, are also have one foot still in natural magic. But such traditions went underground or into literature, as Foucault claims, from Holderlin to Mallarmé and on to Antonin Artaud, as he puts it, influencing modern poetry's rediscovery of a language that extended beyond the simple goal of signification and representation the Enlightenment dedicated it to. Natural magicians reassured their audiences, and one should add, the Inquisition, that their spectacles relied solely on the virtues that the creator had hidden within nature, not on the sinister and more limited powers of demons. Later conjurers claimed to depend on nothing more than physical and mechanical skill in creating the illusion of the supernatural. And in fact, the conjurer, which is what I want to kind of shift to now, pure and simple, had long tried to separate himself from the malevolent necromancer and claimed to offer nothing but entertainment and amusement. Magic, understood as the art of deception or conjuring, had tricked the eye for millennia, and motion plays a major role in this art of illusion, even when it doesn't aim at producing an illusion of motion in itself. The magician's motto, the hand is quicker than the eye, announces a contest between the speed and deftness of the magician's hand and the observational powers of the viewer's eye. The manual skill of the conjurer in achieving sleight of hand caused the words juggler and magician to become basically synonymous for many centuries. The magician learned not only how to handle his props, such as the ancient cup and ball, which you see here, but how to direct, or more, accurate, more accurately, to misdirect the eyes of the spectator. The great innovator in 19th century magic, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, described in his memoirs how his mentor, the magician Torini, picked him out as a young man during one of his performances, saying, quote, When I indulge in some amusing paradox or draw the public attention away from the side where the trick is to be performed, you alone escape the snare and kept your eyes fixed on the right spot, unquote. In addition to traditional prestidigitation with its speed of gesture and techniques of misdirection, later 19th century magicians also introduced a spectacular and indeed literally specular form of magic, using improved modern technologies of reflection through glass and mirrors, manipulation of light and lenses, and control of audience point of view in order to create a visual magic upon which the new cinema drew directly. George Melies, 
And this is an uh, image from Melies' theater. He took over the Théâtre Robert Houdin. Uh, and that is not Melies. If you recognize Melies, we'll see a still from him later on from his movies. Uh, but uh, another conjurer. In fact, in his theater, Melies rarely performed occasionally, but more often uh, other conjurers did. George Melly is the great magician of the cinema who'd taken over the management of the Robert Houdin Theater at the end of the 19th century. And it was there that he showed his films, primarily as attractions that the audience could watch while the next magic spectacle, which was elaborate, was being prepared. In the late 19th century, stage magicians immediately recognized the cinema as a cognate form of visual manipulation closely related to their own craft. And here you see uh, the front of the uh, Egyptian Hall, which was the London, the British equivalent of the Teatro Robert Houdin, the, the home of magic. And you can see that it's also showing animated photographs. Um, this is from the 1890s. According to Melies's memoirs, as one of the guests invited by the Lumieres to a preview of the cinematograph, he responded to his first view of projected motion pictures by exclaiming, that's my métier. Norris, uh, Norris's Mrs. Seppe, most likely was expressing her familiarity with this tradition of popular magic theater. Sorry, I brought that on too quick. Uh, ignore that for the moment. Uh, when she dismissed film as simply one more elaborate technological and visual trick indicating her skepticism about the supposedly new medium and the elaborate mechanical device that it was. Now, Jonathan Creary, now you can look at that, uh, has claimed, I'm glad I'm not a magician, I you know, let the rabbit out of the hat too soon, um, has claimed that the 19th century science focused on the question of the body and the senses. These new investigations observed that certain Perceptions could be induced and need not refer to the outside world at all, remaining simply the product of subjective physiological processes. The motivation for tricking the senses in this scientific context moved from demonstrating the limits of human knowledge to providing a means for investigating and observing and detailing the physiological mediations between man and the world. For Crary, the optical devices of the 19th century reveal precisely this new understanding and practice of embodied vision within a Foucauldian process of disciplining the observer. This is one of those uh, devices, the, the zoetrope, uh, in which one would see a moving image through the slot as indicated by the, uh, the red diagram. The 19th century approached vision in a new mode, Quoting Crary, vision, rather than a privileged form of knowledge, became itself an object of knowledge, of observation. From the beginning of the 19th century, a science of vision will tend to mean increasingly an interrogation of the physiological makeup of the human subject, rather than the mechanics of light and optical transmission. Unquote. Optical illusions, therefore, no longer simply obscure or, in Kirchner's case, uh, figure the truth about the world, but rather offer new information about the process of perceiving 
and the perceiver's body. Focusing on human perception redefined the complex problem of seeing things that were not there. Optical illusions no longer indicated tricks of the devil, nor the manipulations of Descartes' evil genius that prevented sense-bound humans from knowing certainty through their fallible modes of perception. Discovering the nature of visual illusion revealed the essential process of vision, just as knowledge of disease reveals the process of health. To differentiate the novelty of the optical and technological moving image as it appeared in the 19th century, from the earlier illusions of the magician, I want to relate two devices that embodied both the continuity of this tradition, because I am claiming there's a continuity here, but also its uniquely modern transformation. These two devices that I'm now going to discuss are the blow, or flick book, and the flip, or thumb book. Ricky Jay, who is an American superb scholar and practitioner of the art of conjuring, has written the only thorough study of the blow book and describes it as the oldest manufactured conjuring prop offered for sale as early as 1584. And this is his book, The Magic Magic Book. And it is not only a history of the uh, blow book, but it is a blow book. I'm going to tell you what a blow book is in a minute. And I have to lapse into uh, anecdote here because um, I've been studying the blow book by description. I finally got to see this. This is in very rare edition only. I found it in the Getty. And, you know, had to, of course, handle it with gloves. And the whole point of a blow book is that you have to flick it. And I wasn't allowed to flick it. So I thought, I will never understand how this operates. <laughs> Luckily, this uh, past March, uh, I held a workshop at the, uh, the Getty in Los Angeles and invited Ricky Jay. And he came and he demonstrated the blow book. And it was extraordinary. Uh, so I now know, but of course, I can't do it. I neither have a blow book, nor, as I've demonstrated, could I probably handle it if I did. But uh, I hope I will try to, through my sources, tell you what it is. Um, okay. The great natural magician, Girolamo Cardano, had described this device even earlier, in 1550, saying, quote, Conjurers show different and always unlike pictures in one and the same book. Which is a succinct description, but only makes sense if you already know what a blow book is. Francis Turpak uh, gives a clear and concise definition. It's a type of bound manuscript or printed book that in the hands of a skillful practitioner offers at one pass a series of identical images and another pass nothing but blank pages. I'm going to give you more descriptions and hopefully this will become clearer as we go on. An extremely simple device, the blow book relies on the form of the book to allow a series of pages to be rifled rapidly. But this is a trick book and a series of notches and tabs have been arranged on the pages so that the magician can flip through a separate series of pages in a way that would remain unperceived by the spectator. Now, here is a, a blow book, uh, and you can see in the side the notches. 
and I'll continue to describe it, but that they would allow someone, a, a, a magician, to flip and only show certain pages. Thus, one set of notches would allow the conjurer to display only pictures, say, with a particular motif, such as demons. Uh, flipping another set of notches would yield images of angels or animals or flowers or perhaps most dramatically blank pages with no images whatsoever. And when Ricky did this, he would go, he would show the different thing. Well, this is a book all with pictures of birds. He goes, no. And then he'd flip it again. It's a book with nothing on any of its pages. And you would be convinced that this had happened. The classic description comes from Reginald Scott's 1558 book, The Discovery of Witchcraft, quoting this from its 16th century English. They have, they say, a book whereof he would make you think first that every leaf was clean white paper. Then, by virtue of words, he would show you every leaf to be painted with birds, then with beasts, then with serpents, then with angels, etc. As Scott makes clear, the sudden appearance, transformation, or disappearance of the images in the book was the effect given by a skillful manipulation. What he calls the virtue of words probably means magical incantations that the conjurer would intone, as well as his patter, which would provide a bit of misdirection, misdirection away from what his fingers were doing. Jay quotes the famous 17th century magic how-to book, Hocus Pocus Jr., The Anatomy of Lange Germain, or The Art of Juggling, from 1634, which described the proper way to handle what it refers to as a juggling book. Here's the quote. Your thumb set upon the parchment stays, show them orderly and nimbly, but with a bold and audacious countenance, for that must be the grace of all your tricks. Say, this book is not painted thus, as some of you may suppose, but it is of such a property that whosoever bloweth on it, it will give the imp- representation of whatever he is naturally addicted unto. Now, the action of blowing in the book was another form of misdirection, as if the magician, or often the onlooker's breath, either brought the picture into being or blew them off the page. Hence one of its names, the blow book. Curiously, this name misdirects one from the true nature of the trick, whereas the alternative term, flick book, basically gives it away. The blow book plays a role, in fact, in, and forgive my pronunciation, De Selsame Springenfeld, from 1630, one of the picturesque novels by the German Baroque master Johann Grimmelhausen. Um, Simplicimus the vagabond protagonist of the series of novels, obtains a magic book, which he displays for money. I'm sorry, this is a, uh, an image of uh, acrobats, and it's from a very old blow book, but you can kind of see the notches there. And this, of course, is a title page from the Grimmelhausen. The show he puts on before a curious market crowd explains Hocus Pocus Jr.'s obscure claim that whosoever bloweth on it, it will give the representation of whatsoever he's naturally addicted onto. Simplicimus first shows the pages of his book to be blank and then asks a member of the audience to blow into it. Rifling the book to show a series of illustrations of weapons, he declares the man to be a rowdy soldier. 
The next onlooker blows and images of cavaliers and their ladies appear, prompting the showman to declare that gentleman enjoys the delights of lovemaking. While the breath of a rich burger produces images of coins, and another onlooker blows up images of cards and is pronounced a gambler, and so on. Taken together, these descriptions from the 16th and 17th century give us a pretty good idea of the principle of the blowbook. But the actual effect remains a bit elusive, and of course it was intended to seem magical. The blowbook was not designed to produce an optical moving image. Rather, flicking through these pages made images transform vanish or appear suddenly, a variation on the central trick of most conjuring. The rapid flicking of the various pages was not limited to switching from one image to another, since similar if not identical images were printed on multiple pages, at least seven pages for each image in Scott's description. In other words, when Simplicissimus displays the image of coins after the burger blows in his book, he doesn't show a single page, but flicks through a number of pages similarly picturing coins. This multiplicity of pages gave the viewer the impression that the conjurer is showing every page in the book and that they all have the same image until the next blow or incantation summons up a different image, demons or cards or purely blank pages. Although this flicking of pages does not seem to produce a moving image, it does seem to use something like flicker fusion to produce a single image from the series of rapidly passing pages bearing the same image. I believe the flickering image of the various leaves may visually set up the illusion of the image transforming as the magician then moves between separate image series. But even if visible motion plays a role, or plays no role, the flick book primarily depends on traditional sleight of hand and prestidigitation to make things transform, appear and disappear, rather than producing the trick of moving images. When Simplicimus explains how the book functions to his companion, Springenfeld, he asks, but what about that book, Springenfeld asked? Isn't that sorcery? Is there just, isn't there just a bit of magic there? To which he replies, what about conjurers and sharpers? Isn't that all sleight of hand, childish tricks that amaze simple fools like you because they haven't got the intelligence to see what's really going on? But later... Simplicimus hoping to convert Springenfeld from his cynical, irreligious beliefs, uses the blow book to persuade him to repent, showing him the blank pages first as an emblem of the white garment of innocence he gained at baptism and which he since stained with many sins, the images of the various pleasures, cards, money, women. Thus the blow book brings together not only the device of transforming images, but the alternation between the conjurer's acknowledgement of trickery and the serious allegories of the nature of God's cosmos and man's place within it offered by natural magic. The blow book was primarily a conjurer's device, relying on simple mechanism, death manipulation, and the power of misdirection. But it was used by practitioners of natural magic as well. The heir and disciple of Athenaeus Kircher, Casper Schott, in his compendium, of natural magic, Magicae Naturalis Centura Trace, from 1664, reported, quote, among the secret manuscripts that I found in the papers of Father Athenaeus Kircher in Rome, there is one in which a book is so constructed that when the leaves are turned, they show images of every kind, and yet images of only one kind 
appear in one and the same turning of its leaves, which is another description that would be totally incomprehensible if we didn't already know the nature of the blowbook. Schott and his works present a fascinating image of the transformation of magic into technology. Schott not only made the traditional distinction between natural magic, secrets embedded in creation, the sacred hieroglyphs of the creator, and evil demonic magic, which comes from concourse with demons, but added another category, which he called artificial magic, which describes the creation of magical devices or machines through human ingenuity. Schott's book deals equally with the virtues of plants and stones, the effects of optics and acoustics, and such mechanical devices as gears and jacks. Lynn Thorndike, the great historian of 20th century, 20th century historian of magic and experimental science, commenting on this combination of descriptions of magical practices and mechanical effects, states, very much from a 20th century perspective, machinery and magic do not go together. Magic may employ sleight of hand, but not the monotonous regularity of the impersonal mechanics, which is the very antithesis of magic. Unquote. But one might wonder whether this judgment not only depends on one's historical perspective, but also whether one stands in the position of viewer or practitioner. What happens, in fact, if viewer and practitioner merge? Is it possible to trick oneself? That seems to be the question raised by the trick that I'm now going to talk about of optical movement. If the unfamiliar flick book may be hard for contemporary readers to imagine, it's also easy to confuse it with the later and still current flip or thumb book. Now, I've got four of these right here. Uh, let me just, I know most of you, hopefully all of you, if you're ever children, have seen these, uh, but uh, let me uh, pass them uh, And actually, if you could hand those back. These are a little random. Some of them are based on original flip books, and some of them are, are totally modern. The two devices remain very different items, and their difference illuminates how 19th century optical toys transformed older traditions of conjuring and visual illusions and raised the new issue of the body and perception. The blow book maintained a marked difference between the canny manipulator of the book and its duped viewer. The magician never let the magic book out of his hands, and he alone knew its secret, its concealed system of notched pages and the protocols of their display. Further, he possessed the dexterity to accomplish the flick of the pages and stage manage the display of it, required to present the illusion of spontaneous transformation. The showman of a blow book literally juggled its pages, while the spectator wit watched, misdirected by the magician's patter, his gestures, and his stage presence. The thumb book, on the other hand, is easily grasped between fingers and thumb, and nothing remains hidden. Even a small child can operate it. The simplest of optical toys, as the historian of the flipbook Pascal Fauché calls it, the flipbook relies not only on the craft of binding the pages together so that they can be flipped rapidly, and most essential, the arrangement of the images it contains. Rather than a series of differing images or blank pages, 
The flip book presents a series of images of the same figure in close succession in the sequential stages of emotion. Now, let me see. I'm going to try to bring on and hope that I don't, in the process, uh, lose my... Oh, there's my cursor. Um, let me see. This is a very good website that Pascal Fache has set up uh, for um, the history of the flipbook. Uh, and um, I want to... I know you've got some of them <coughs> in your hands, hopefully, but uh, look at a couple uh, here. immediately want to replay it. <laughs> Oops, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll find it again. Wait here, let me do this one. And these pages are flipped as one name of the device, the thumb book, which is particularly the German, Daumkino, uh, indicates no complex manual juggling of varied tabs is necessary, just a simple movement of the thumb. The rapid passing pages produce not a metamorphosis, but a moving image performing a brief action. But the degree to which movement has to be broken into individual images to produce apparent motion could hardly have been imagined before a modern conception of breaking time into instance. It's an interesting thing. We're not absolutely sure when the flip book first appeared. And since it's technologically very simple, there even have been speculations that it existed in the Middle Ages. Uh, and there's, in fact, a novel by Theodore Rozek with this thesis that the Cathars actually invented it. However, we've never found one earlier than the middle of the 19th century. And it seems to me that, in fact, it doesn't uh, go back that far, even though technologically it could, but it's dependent upon this conception of the analysis of action into component parts, which, while evolving since the Renaissance, appears only in the 19th century as a conjunction of the scientific analysis of perception through the use of machines. The flip books, flick books' illusion of metamorphosis and sudden appearances and disappearances presented a different conception, wondering at a magical transformation, while the flip book masters and brings down the flow of action. The earliest documentation of a flip book from, comes from the British patent granted to Johns Barnes Linnet in 1868, which described the device as an improvement, sorry, this is not a very clear slide, for producing optical illusions, quote, by presenting to the eye in rapid succession a series of pictures of objects 
representing the objects in several successive positions they occupy when in motion and thereby producing the impression of moving objects. In other words, this appears later than the other uh, uh, devices such as the phenakistoscope and zoetrope, even though it is in effect more uh, simple. The simplicity of the flip book comes after these more complex predecessors, but seems to have been inspired by the principles they demonstrated. An American patent of a few years later, granted to Henry von Rovenberg in 1882, specified the flip book as an improvement to the class of optical toys, quote, which depend upon the well-known phenomenon technically termed persistence of vision. Tracing the point where the flip book introduced photographs may prove elusive. Flip books may have used staged photographs even before the mastery of instantaneous photography in the 1870s, just as Coleman Sellers did with his chematoscope from 1861, which animated a series of specially posed photographs in a zoetrope, or Henry Heil's uh, phasmotrope, uh, which used a uh, phenakistoscope disc with posed photographs. But as Charles Musser stresses, these devices remain somewhat primitive since the ability to photograph actions continuously and instantaneously had not yet been achieved and the photographs remained posed approximation. However, I've never seen a photographic flipbook before the mastery of motion photography. After the mastery of chronophotography and motion photography in the 1890s, the photographic flipbook has a golden age, with most of the nascent, nascent manufacturers of motion pictures also offering flip books along with their peep show or projection devices, often recycling scenes available in the other formats. Lumiere, Edison, Goma, Skladinowski, American Mutoscope and Biograph all marketed flip books, as well as viewing devices which made the flipping of the leaves a bit smoother. The mutoscope, which you see at the bottom there, of Herman Kastler, perhaps the earliest viewer using flipping cards on reels, offered a particularly resilient form, with reels still being produced until the 1930s. And in fact, today you can still find these viewers in some penny arcades as a bit of nostalgic visual culture, usually with naked women inside, um, or semi-naked. Uh, like the other early moving picture devices, flip books offered only brief snippets of motion. Initial versions, such as linnets, stuck close to the repetitive actions that were familiar from the phenakistoscope or the zoetrope, a sailor dancing the hornpipe, dancing skeletons, a woman churning butter, the sails of a windmill turning, or a seesaw moving up and down. But especially after the introduction of motion photography, they were no longer limited to the circular and endless actions. Actions actually might progress and come to a climax. Women got kissed, as you saw, or got undressed, or men fell down. The photographic, as Roland Barth has argued, tends to present the singular, the specific and unique movement, and the photographic flipbook often presents a complete action rather than an endless cycle. Nonetheless, even if potentially liberated from the Sisyphean cycle of the earlier device, at the same time, these unique movements could always be repeated, starting and stopping once more with the flick of a thumb. Even more than the previous devices, the flipbook placed the moving image within reach. The modern trick of motion 
both derives from the magical possibility of metamorphosis and transformation and differs from it. It is not accidental that metamorphosis primarily refers to a mythical potential of moving between species, from man to animal, from man to God, from man to plant, or inanimate object, or back and forth. Thus, such optical tricks, such as the blow book, or the transformation scenes of Baroque theater, or the trick magic lantern slide, such as we see here, often stage a magical transformation, a fundamental change in being, a wonder. These are transformations, however, rather than movements. The threshold of the modern moving image, which I'm claiming these 19th century philosophical toys various across, works on human perception rather than imagination, even if they offer a mode of communication between the two. One does not see one thing in place of another as in a magic trick, but rather watches an action transpiring. What is shown in familiar and indeed, uh, I'm sorry, what is shown is familiar and indeed can be quite common. Mac and Trina marvel over a horse moving his head, not an angel becoming a demon. The everyday has become marvelous. Nonetheless, as with all technological marvels, familiarity dulls the edge of wonder. If the magic of metamorphosis slumbers in the contemporary moving image beneath its commonplace ubiquity, I think it can also be reawakened. After purchasing a moving camera, a movie camera, in order to present his own version of the Lumiere scenes of everyday life, card parties, the arrival of trains, Parisian street scenes, as the latest optical device displayed during Entre-Ox in his Théâtre Robert Houdin, Georges Méliès soon discovered cinema's potential of transformation, of an abrupt presto change magical appearances or disappearances managed through the manipulation of the camera, stop motion, and editing, the substitution splice. Méliès made a number of films, such as L'Ive Magique, or The Living Playing Cards, that invoke the transformation offered by earlier technology, such as the blow book. But he now accomplishes the metamorphosis through film. The successive frames of film, the still images that the motion picture camera registered on the strip of celluloid, passed action into manipulable units that could create, or rather recreate, motion. And I recreate identity in a manner as mythological as Ovid. Each frame could function like the page in a blow book. Only now the secret tabs lay in the hands of the cinema technician. George Méliès was initially attracted by the cinema by its trick of motion. He soon realized as a stage magician that it not only could produce motion, but also transformation. Moving image technology, including the contemporary use of computer-generated images, CGI, that control not only frames, but that constitute an action, but the pixels that form an image moved a capacity to produce movement to a capacity to reformulate and reconfigure. The trick of motion can now surpass any motion seen in the familiar world and yet endow it as well with familiar believability. Thank you.
think we finished just in time where I could still read the page. <laughs> so now it's my pleasure to welcome forward um, here, Holger uh, Kattenberg, who has drafted a response to Gunning's um, talk. And um, we're really happy that he was able to join us because his most recent work, um, his most recent books, um, Film as Theory or Rainbow Days Kinos, quite gives us an idea of like his appropriateness for this task and for uh, the topics that we're trying to address in this workshop. So I very much welcome you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. Thanks uh, for uh, yeah, it's a bit hard. Um, like after the film, when the light is uh, on. Um, thank you very much, Tom. Thanks, uh, Arina and Katya, for inviting me and assigning me the task to uh, do this response. Um, I'm going to talk in English. I thought it was maybe uh, a polite gesture. Thank you. If Tom uh, knew what I was saying about <laughs> him. Um, Otherwise, and, sudden laughter would worry me. Yeah. <laughs> um, just one explanation. I was in a small dilemma yesterday, um, which I always like because uh, it's good to know that it's a small dilemma and it's much better than a big dilemma. The dilemma was that I... Um, didn't know what Tom would be talking about tonight, or even worse, I thought he was talking about what he was talking about yesterday. <laughs> so um, I thought I might perform a trick to get out of the dilemma, and I'm going to give away the trick straight away. Um, I took yet another text by Tom Gunning, because I knew it was all going to be all about motion, and I thought it might be interesting to add some uh, thoughts of yours that come from this different text, still on motion, and um, yeah, bring them into the discussion. So I'm going to add, add gunning to gunning and see if um, <laughs> the equation still gives gunning after I added <laughs> both uh, different gunnings. Inventing the moving image and then forgetting it is one of the beautiful titles that Tom Gunning is very good at inventing. Yet apart from being a nice title, it also contains an important argument which could be rephrased as follows. We have not yet found or rediscovered an adequate form to think about moving images. On the contrary, some of the theoretical and historical accounts proposed by film studies in the last decades have rather obscured, covered up, or pushed aside the crucial questions. Following Tom Gunning, I would guess that only 50% of the term moving image have been forgotten, namely its movement. Claiming that movement has been forgotten seems strange and counterintuitive at first. Today, movement is everywhere. We are surrounded by moving images all the time. And one of the regular pessimistic complaints precisely concerns the dominance of movement and the absence of contemplation and calm. Yet Gunning's point is a different one, and I want to reformulate it briefly without, I'm afraid, adding much to it. What does it mean to forget the moving image? Let me take a short detour before coming back to this crucial question in a minute. In another article, with an equally beautiful title, Moving Away from the Index, Gunning refers to what he feels is, quote, one of the great scandals of film theory. He specifies what he means by criticizing, again, quote, the dominance of a photographic understanding of cinema, end quote, and its necessary consequence, again, a quote, his, the marginal, marginalization of animation. Animation, in this sense, I would argue, comprises not only the trajectory from Emile Kohl via Disney to Pixar, 
but also large parts of experimental cinema, let's say hand-painted films by Harry Smith, Norman McLaren, Olen Lai, or computer-generated images by Stan van der Beek. And it comprises large parts of what is usually called the prehistory of cinema, namely all kinds of optical devices and tricks that he talked about tonight. As became very clear in the discussion yesterday evening after his lecture at the IKKM, Gunning wants to emphasize the continuity between tricks, optical devices, cinema, and other moving image techniques, rather than the supposed ruptures between them. The question Tom Gunning raises in moving away from the index, and which is, I think, also relevant for older optical tricks that he focuses on his paper in tonight, is how do we account theoretically for films in which dominant modes of mise-en-scene and realism not really apply, but which make up large and important portions of film history? Or, put somewhat polemically, what's the point of theoretical claims if they explicitly have to exclude all these kinds of practices and move them to the periphery of cinema? Gunning's reaction to these questions is to look for principles that are able to define cinema in a broader, and more inclusive sense than the criteria of indexical realism linked to photo photographic material has been able to. Movement, or motion, precisely is one of the two crucial qualities that runs across all kinds of cinema, be it documentary or narrative, animated or directed, alive or dead, produced with, with or without a camera. And, as you have witnessed tonight, projection that he started with is the second one of these comprehensive cinematic phenomena that Gunning has been researching thoroughly for a while now. What it means to reconsider movement as a central property in cinema becomes clear in his discussion of the histor history of optical tricks and philosophical toys from the 19th and earlier centuries. His argument is directed against the tendency to devalue the perception of movement as nothing else than a physiological def deficiency in humans. On the contrary, it should be cherished as a capacity that demands participation. It renders the spectator active rather than just passive. It is a quality rather than a defect. I have to admit that I'm not familiar with the physiological details of the phi effect and its compatibility or incompatibility with the paradigm of persistence of vision, but the strategic value of this argument is quite clear to me. If you want to analyze motion not as a secondary effect, but for its own sake and at its own terms, you will have to proceed differently than it has been done most of the time. In a way, this comes back to the old Bergsonian question, and Gunning reveals himself, I would say, to be a Bergsonian when he claims, I quote, only motion, one can assume, is able to convey motion. And he continues, much in the spirit of Bergson, <coughs> but without adopting his anti-cinematic effect. Therefore, to perceive motion, rather than represent it statically in a manner that destroys its essence, one must participate in the motion itself." End quote. It is hard, and even harder in Weimar, to speak about Bergson and cinema without mentioning a more recent philosopher. <laughs> Yet where Deleuze, as you said, uh, or I would claim, tries to describe the movement image as a specific type of images, that has primarily been dominant in film history's first 50 years, Gunning wants it to be seen as a property of cinema itself in a wider and inclusive sense that can account for its peripheries as well as its supposed center. There is a risk of installing movement and projection as two new, let's say, master trophies of cinema and thus only replacing indexicality by something else. In Tom Gunning's case, however, 
the risk is small for the very simple reason that he is a film historian and therefore always interested in concrete objects and sources, as we saw tonight. Matters of media specificity, therefore, don't run the risk of becoming essentialist claims about cinema as such, but are always discussed in specific historical constellations, as is the case with the philosophical toys or optical illusions of the 18th century. Let me add one more thought for moving away from the index. Going back to an early text by Christian Metz, Gunning directs our attention to the connection between movement and the impression of reality, something that the philosophical toys are also very much about. Metz writes that the role of the impression of reality via motion is, I quote, to inject the reality of motion into the unreality of the image and thus render the work of imagination more real than it had ever been, end quote. And Gunning commends this quote by Metz as follows, quote, Like Mercury, winged messenger of the gods, cinematic motion crosses the boundaries between heaven and earth between the embodied senses and flights of fancy, not simply playing the whole gamut of film style, but contaminating one with the other, endowing the fantastic with the realistic impression of visual motion." Quote. The problem of movement, therefore, is the crucial part of a larger context of cinematic illusion. Aesthetic discussions of illusion in the 18th century have made clear that illusion is not to be misunderstood in opposition to reflection and intellect. On the contrary, everybody who goes to the theater is perfectly aware of the fact that he's going to be confronted with a play, much like Mac in Frank Norris's novel that Gunning began his lecture tonight with. It is a self-conscious decision, a contract that is signed each time you buy a ticket, and there is no risk of confounding the stage play with the real world outside. I think you see this slightly different because we talked about it. Yes. Yeah. He or she can only be happy and satisfied with the illusion by oscillating between the impression of verisimilitude and the knowledge about the artificiality of the whole situation. Engaging in illusion, like movement in film, is a capacity rather than a deficiency. This tradition of value in illusion as a highly reflected endeavor, maybe inaugurated more than 200 years ago by Diderot, Mendelssohn and others, has largely been forgotten. And this probably holds true more than anything for film theory, where ideological and political concerns tended to identify illusion with all kinds of evil. With a treacherous world imposed upon the defenseless spectator, with complicity to the illusionary capitalist society, with an escapist attitude that showed a cynical neglect towards the existing grievances in society. In a milder way, this position is Mrs. Siepe's uh, one in Frank Norris's novel. After all these expressions of sympathy and agreement, I might be entitled to mention one risk that Tom Gunning, I'm sure, is perfectly aware of. For even if the criteria of projection and movement encompass much more than any authorist perspective on exclusively narrative cinema and its representational properties can account for, both in conceptual and historical respect, it seems that yet another 50% of cinema are still missing, and everybody in the audience will easily guess that sound is what I have in mind. If projection and movement are moved away from the periphery into the center of the cinematic, how could film sound be integrated into this model, or is it just a totally different question which uh, would, be, uh, would have to be dealt with in a different book? As both phenomena exclusively operate on a visual level, it seems to me that a third term would have to be brought in to do justice to what sound does, not least for the perception of movement. I know that in Chicago, 
Tom Gunning is working and teaching at the Department of Art History, and I'm perfectly aware that the headline above the job that I have started in here in Weimar in May is image theory. <laughs> in both cases, the institutional setting conceives of cinema as a realm of images, not of sounds, thus pushing sound to yet another periphery of cinema. This is something that we should be aware of, and I'm very much looking forward to a paper by Tom Gunning called Inventing Sound Film and Then Forgetting It. <laughs> and um, given the exhaustive list of articles he has written, it might even already exist. <laughs> Thank you. Well, if I can respond a little bit without it just becoming the Volker Tom show. Um, I, I mean, thank you so much. These are wonderful um, uh, questions and, 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 and I think very accurate descriptions as well. To, to deal with the first one, because uh, the last one first, because I think it's the simplest, the, the issue of sound. Um, uh, actually, um, you know, one of my main colleagues at the University of Chicago is Jim Laster, who's one of the great historians of film sound. And sound is, I agree, very important. There are historical, practical reasons why I haven't dealt with it. But they do have a kind of weird thing, which I'll, I'll get to. I mean, the, the practical one is that what I'm trying to deal with, my title provisionally for this book is Inventing the Moving Image, and it will probably go up to about um, 1912, maybe, you know. Uh, you know, kind of all downhill after that. But in any case, sound is 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 not exactly a factor. Then um, now it is a factor, and I've written. Um, I haven't written the article that you you, you talked about, but I've written um, uh, uh, an article about sound in in early film, and particularly how close the. Um, I I don't think. I, I, I think I can even state this as a fact, not as an interpretation. There would be no cinema if there hadn't been the phonograph first. And that the cinema, I mean, Edison, when he started his caveat to invent cinema, he said, I want to do a machine that will do for the eye what the phonograph did for the ear. And that to me is very, very significant. So it's not only the literal sound, but actually the sound recording, uh, which is very important. In this early period, though, sound is primarily accompaniment. And it's a different sort of beast, I think. Uh, and, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it, is, it is different. It has to me, to my mind, has more to do with the fact that cinema at this point is parsed through several elements. You know, uh, that, there are short that a program is several short films that's usually combined with a live act that live music is there, and, and, and so on. So, um, so there, there are reasons that the sound film, qua sound film, is not what I'm dealing with. But then, two other very interesting issues. In many ways, and I think I mentioned this last night, the inspiration for me thinking about this idea of the moving image as broad is silent and sound film. Mm -hmm. They are so different. Mm -hmm. And yet, I do believe they share a tradition and a history. And it's kind of like um, you know, that moment of negotiation in the 30s, and in many ways it's only completed by Andre Pazan, to my mind, that really kind of says these are these share a common history and sound isn't just a betrayal. 
is to me extremely, extremely important. And extremely important for thinking about how we film dealing now with other media. You know, um, because the, the way the sound enters is extremely complex, economically, technologically, aesthetically, and theoretically. The other thing that, that's very, very curious to me, because the thing that I, when you said there's something that's left out, I went, okay, I know what that is. And actually it's to me photography, you know, and the realism of photography, which in a way I'm polemically saying, we've been talking about that for, for a generation, let's, let's, let's drop it for a while. But in fact, we can't. I mean, you know, if I'm dropping it for a while, it's because then when we pick it up again, it'll look different, you know, and I think that's, that's important. And one of the things that is fascinating to me is, I mean, I am, it, it's interesting, my favorite theorist is probably Bazin, even though I don't think I agree with him on too many things. Um, but he's the person who I think thinks the most profoundly. And the whole issue of partly seeing sound film as the fulfillment of film, not the betrayal, and the issue of this very undefined term and that he kind of leaves alone about something like realism. Uh, it seems to me one of the things that he doesn't do is acknowledge how much, even though I think it's there if you look for it, uh, sound contributes to the realism effect of, of cinema. And I think once you introduce sound, something very different happens. Now, I, I, I think there are lots of ways to play with the sound. And Eisenstein immediately saw the threat to the style that he'd been dealing with that sound would offer, and that sound could participate in his style, but that it probably wouldn't. And um, that's, to me, a very big issue. So, so these are, I, I absolutely agree, I mean, sound, but there is a way, I guess, primarily I'd say it historically, that, to me, the moving image, movement and projection are primary. Um, but I, I think maybe even theoretically, I think sound is neglected, important, vital, particularly for understanding the history of film, but also doesn't come in for a while. You know? so, and, and I don't think that sound accompaniment is the same thing, even though it's very important. Um, illusion. Uh, well, that could take us all night, but I'll try to, try to answer it. Okay, my objection, particularly last night, I, I realized how much I used it tonight. I hadn't you know, exactly thought about that after uh, saying I don't like the term last night. Uh, is primarily to the way the term is used in, in at least some philosophical con, uh, context, and particularly with the idea that the, the movement is an illusion. You know? Now, if we mean, as I think you do, illusion as a synonym for fantasy, for fiction, uh, yeah, I have no problem. But I, I, I don't think it's a good term for that. Even, you know, I use it here in terms of magicians when magicians are literally tricking you. Mm -hmm. You think you saw this, but it actually wasn't this. I'd say know? this is the trick. But, uh, you, you, I guess uh, our notions are just uh, opposite ones. Like, yeah, yeah, when you yes, trick, yeah. I would speak of yeah. the well, and the other yeah, way around. Yeah, I mean, it, is, it has to do, I think, though, with the, the heavy metaphysical yeah. freight that illusion has not only in philosophy but in, in, in uh, religion, you know. Uh, whereas trick is practical, you know. As, as you say, I have a liking for the concrete. And, uh, uh, but in fact, I, I think, you know, it, it, you know, one of my main points, as I say here, is that, uh, okay, let, let me kind of put it, I've said this a number of times, but it's particularly clear here. 
what there, there is a tradition. I don't know who began it. Is it in Bazan? It might be. Um, though I think it's probably before it's a duel or somebody. Of Lumiere Melies. Mm-hmm. You know, Lumiere's so, realism, you know, and Melies is, is, is fantasy and illusion. Whereas the point to me is that Mac and Trina look at not a Lumiere film, but an actuality mm-hmm. and say, you know, that's magic. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's wonder. Mm-hmm. You know, and Mississippi says that's a trick. Mm-hmm. You know, so to me, it's it's that realism is actually very very interesting, but partly because it's often perceived as as, as a trick. You know, so I, uh, um, you know, and illusion is just too freighted a term for me. But I, I actually don't think we have a disagreement. Although may, maybe there is one there, but I, I, from what you were saying, I think I. I agree with that. I just, yeah, I I'll prefer be, not to call I'll it. Peaceful enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so those were the two main, I think, questions yeah. that you. Yeah. Yes. So thank you again very much. Um, we are going to open it up to the floor for questions. We only have time for about three or four questions. So if you really have something to ask, definitely raise your hand up. Okay. So we'll start with Stefanos. Um, thank you very much. For, for this wonderful talk, and I have a question. Um, in this talk, you talked at one point about what you call a transformation of magic into technology, mm-hmm. and, and it, you know, and it's a you know, it's of course a loose formulation, and, it, and I think it captures quite accurately the historical trajectory you were describing. At the same time, it, it does sound a little bit rationalistic if you push that one phrase. And the question I have is, um, wh- why do you think that something like magic, the rhetoric of magic, persists in accounts of the moving image. And I do think you're right that in the thumb book, you know, it's so simple, I don't think that there's much space for magic, you know, you don't talk about the magic of the thumb book. But when, when you have cinema, you know, the rhetoric of magic is pervasive when cinema mm-hmm. is new technology is introduced. And, um, and, and my question would be, do you just think that's because the technology is more complex, or is there something more involved? It is a complicated question, let me, let me, because again, of the terms. And I actually, I do think the thumb book has magic. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, let's maybe use the word wonder. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a very important term for me. Uh, uh, that, uh, you know, when we look at a thumb book, we go, how's that happen? You know, suddenly it's moving in front of us. Um, uh, and the idea of technology magic moving into technology what I primarily mean there is uh, is the reception you know, in other words that in some way uh, what was at one point looked at as magical becomes everyday and purely purpose driven and therefore technological but actually I think the relation between magic and technology is always capable of being reignited, uh, provided it's, there's enough defamiliarization uh, uh, in it. You know, I mean, in other words, every new technology seems magical uh, initially. You know, uh, you know, so the telephone and the, you know, all of these things actually have uncanny dimensions. I've actually written an, an article about this, about the idea of. You know, the kind of cycle, you know, of, of familiarization where, where it becomes, where you forget it, um, basically. But my point is that very often you forget it, but it can reemerge. And in fact, all you have to do is to watch horror films to see what things reemerge as frightening. 
And the whole point is usually that they're things that seem every day. Although very often they're new things, like, you know, uh, the, the first screen, the, you know, the mobile phone. You know, uh, uh, you know it's very frightening. Uh, you know. um, but cinema and magic. This is tricky because the magic is so ideologically um, overdetermined. And there is this whole devotion of the film industry and publicity to magic, you know. And to a large extent, it is... God, I almost want to say pernicious, even though I usually don't get moralistic about things like this. But, but in other words, I do think it's, it's misdirection. You know, it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, endowing certain things not with something that can be understood as technology but with, 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 with some extra. At the same time, however, since I believe in wonder, I do think films constantly, you know, if that is exploited and perhaps even perniciously arranged by publicity and so on, it's because it is, it does exist, you know. Uh, and one of the things that always fascinates me is the way, and this is maybe related to, you know, that, that spectators occupy this weird position of belief, disbelief, you know, and that I think it's, to me, it's not willing suspension of disbelief. That's, that's the only, I think, disagree. I mean, certainly it is in some ways. But what, what I'm interested in is where you really, I mean, children, of course, have this. I remember a friend of mine took his child to see a production of Peter Pan where, you know, they were flying and he said to the uh, to his six year old boy, "You understand how they fly?" He said, "Yes, they've got you know wires, so, so they attach these wires to them. Then they sprinkle them with pixie dust, and they fly. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like both systems of causality are there. And I think this is actually very frequent uh, in a in a, in in a, in a funny way, and you know, and it's kind of related to 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 what you're talking about, and that is. Basically, though, you know, if I'm giving a quick answer to your why is film persistently magic, why does it have this quality of wonder, to me, although it's overdetermined, there are many answers to that. One of them is because of the moving image. That I really think we're still amazed by the moving image. I mean, I think everybody picks up that thumb book and goes, that's something, even though none of us don't know about it. You know, but actually seeing it happen is, is, is fascinating. Yeah. So the next question, yeah. comes from Angle. Yeah, uh, thank you, Tom, very much for this second in a row in only two nights. <laughs> this is very impressive. But uh, I have a question that... Uh, we were going to do three, right? <laughs> we were going to do what At one point I scheduled to do one tomorrow, yes. But this is a problem. I would like to make you... Um, add still something to what you already presented because uh, I would like to refer to a concept that was not in your paper tonight neither yesterday, yesterday mm-hmm. but that was mentioned by Volker uh, when he referred to other texts of you um, and this is of course everybody could expect it. it's the notion of indexicality mm-hmm. including causality yeah. in its relation to men yeah. um, I ask this because I invested some work in the yeah. study of indexicality. Right, right. And, and I, I found course, this very interesting, your presentation yeah, and on it. Of course, it. Yeah. Uh, if you do that, uh, you meet Peirce, mm-hmm. Charles Peirce, who has the most thorough study, uh, yeah. as opposed to my knowledge, of indexicality. And uh, 
um, to him, indexicality is not so much what we think. Yeah. It is namely a relation between an object and a sign that is yeah. uh, denoted or depicted yeah. by the sign of the image. But it is something uh, in the relation between images or signs, first point, and second point, it thematizes, in a philosophical sense of the uh, term thematizing, it thematizes always causality. It is not necessary, for indexicality is not necessary that the cause is represented mm -hmm. in an iconic way. Mm -hmm. It could be, but it right. is not necessary. And all you've explained to us about magic uh, is a reflection on causality, on the ascription of something caused by something else, or the image being able to cause effects and so on. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would say what you did tonight was not a move away from indexicality, yeah. but a move deeply into the problems of indexicality. And I refer to Alfred Gell's wonderful book on magic mm. uh, in his Art and Anthropology. He's referring widely to magic practices mm -hmm. as connected to indexes yeah. and indexicality and uh, agency as a power. And if you say producing something, for instance movement, of course the term of production is causing. Yeah. And in fact producing something means taking somebody into account for having made it. Right? And this, all of this is of course linked to indexicality. So, so if, you, if you agree now that in the question... Just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, yeah, uh, re real quick, I, I, I think ultimately I might say yes. Of course, my attack on indexicality is a particular form of indexicality about photography that was maintained in film studies often very unreflexively. Uh, unreflectively. Uh, and, um, and I even say at one point, I'm not talking about purse really here, and I have to admit, I, I find Perth fascinating and hard, hard to figure out, you know. Uh, so um, uh, it's a little bit, it's one of those cases where, you know, you kind of want a guide, but then you go, well, that guy's going to take me someplace else. Uh, and um, That's what's my, yeah, No, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, no, and, and I am intrigued, in the, and your presentation on the index was, was, was very, very interesting to me and confirmed my intuition that that a Persian understanding is not what we're talking about, you know, that we are talking about very mechanistic use of this term that, uh, that, that's ultimately probably inaccurate. Um, uh, given that, you know, yes, causality is absolutely what we're, what we're, we're talking about here, but it's, and, and of course, in a way, if we go back to, you know, even to what... Um, you know, uh, the Golden Bow, the, you know, the two forms of magic, you know, are basically, one is iconic, and then the other one is indexical, you know, sympathetic magic. And, um, uh, you know, n no, no question uh, to me that that's, that's functioning. Of course, what, what, there is this problem that it doesn't work, you know, in, in some sense, but that's, I, I think we can put that aside for the moment, you know, uh, other than that it, it's clear that I'm not claiming that, that these things are necessarily effective. Uh, but yes, absolutely, they're invoking uh, an indexical logic. They're, they're invoking one or the other, yeah. resemblance or um, uh, influence, uh, uh, sympathies, uh, all of those things, yeah.
So I would agree. You you still need to lead me through that, but but uh, 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 yeah. So we have two final questions. Uh, we've gone quick. Uh, yeah, it's just a small appendix uh, mm-hmm. here to the question of Lawrence Engel, because um, the magical aspect of uh, cinema. Um, isn't it not very much more connected to the realistic aspect? Because uh, in general, um, the magical uh, demanding of media um, is exactly to uh, is when when they seem to become transparent and when they don't seem to be mediatic anymore, but uh, direct. And, and this is the notion of the, the early uh, realistic film more than the uh, films of. Well, I guess I guess I would wonder about the identification of the magical with the transparent. Uh, as I say, you know, uh, it's partly because to me what I'm talking about is wonder, uh, and wonder is to me is about not transparency. It's about noticing, you know, being astonished uh, by an effect, and it does seem to me that when it becomes transparent. Um, it's not magical in that spectacular sense, which is what I'm talking about. Um, and I absolutely think that can be true of the realistic, but it's where you're amazed by the realism. Uh, you know, how do you know how do they get that so real? You know, uh, and uh, rather than when when you take it for granted. So I, I my my problem with with your question would be. Identifying the magical with the transparent, um, uh, as I'm understanding the magical, it's it's not at all transparent. It's it's surprising. It's defamiliarizing. It's astonishing, you know. And I think that's semantically usually how we we associate it. Um, uh, so maybe I'm not understanding why you make that um, correlation. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Just, just a short question. I'm still thinking uh, about this old woman who started with, who said it's only a trick, and, mm-hmm. um, and you said she was not naive at all. Uh, of course not. And, and then you mentioned uh, uh, this Cartesian reaction towards Kircher, who says this is a Jesuit. He has a lot of tricks. And mm-hmm. my question actually really concerns the role and the position of the media theorists or the uh, film theorists towards yeah. uh, the magic effect, actually. So would you describe yourself as a Cartesian uh, when you redescribe mm-hmm. this history of uh, magical tricks or techniques? Um, we already talked about this problem of uh, opposing um, magic to technology. I think uh, you mentioned Fraser, I could also mention Marcel Moos and Hubert wrote this right. very important uh, text on the theory of magical practices. Right. And, they, right. of course, completely deny that there is such a strict opposition between uh, scientific, even, or technical procedures and magical ones. So uh, you have already answered to this point, I think. But still, I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering uh, how uh, the position of media theorists or film theorists would, would, uh, would be towards this problem of the magic effect. Because I think mm-hmm. it's not just the movement itself, but also the movement, this is the point Mose makes, the movement produced not just um, on uh, um, 
the individual, but on the collective yes. body of society. Precisely. So yeah. magic is correlated to society as a whole yeah. in some yeah. way. So how this yeah. social dimension, in a way, or yeah. cultural dimension, comes into play yeah. in your perspective? Yeah. I mean, first off, just to reiterate, yeah. yes, uh, absolutely. For me, the the idea of a complete separation between technology and magic is is problematic. There are cases where it's proper to make it, but but Lynn Thorndike's claim that you know you can't have a magical machine. No, you can't. Um, but but what's interesting is that it, we understand what he means about that there is a problem there because of predictability. Uh, but then this other thing. I mean, yeah, this is the thing uh, that I'm most fascinated in. Mouse is when he basically says, you know, it's the the let's say audience that's not his phrase but to, you know uh it's the the collective uh which uh which um supports the magician uh uh and it's a little more than something simply like just the belief it's 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 the um the effective relationship between them and uh, you know of course one immediately thinks well obviously there's an audience for movies as well and but there becomes something interesting there and this is I, I don't have the answer, but I have the problem. Um, Bazan actually says, I mean, other people have said it too, but that um, w when he's contrasting the moving movie audience with the theater audience, he says the theater audience is collective. The movie audience is individualized. You know? Now, this is, is curious. I think it's a great insight, but as always, what I do with Bazan is I go, wow, that's so smart. Can I tear it apart? Uh, and the thing is that, particularly for early cinema, for a long time, maybe up to the point of sound, you know, mm -hmm. there is more of the sense of a collective. You know, uh, you know, all the descriptions indicated this kind of atomized, individualized, you know, selected, uh, alienated um, uh, being of the audience. Um, it, it's obviously it's a tendency in in modern society. And that is reflected in the audience. Uh, but then what's curious is it goes back to, it isn't as though magic disappears in that discourse. You know? And I don't quite, I don't quite know what to do with this. My sense is not to say, well, magic disappears with the movies and this atomized audience, but rather m the movies propose a type of magic exactly. for an atomized, individualized yeah. spectator who's also got a collective, you know, element. Yeah. So it's 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 to me a very interesting question, uh, you know. And I, it's one of the reasons I at one point thought this book would be a book about magic and mm -hmm. film, and then I thought, no, there are too many big problems there that I haven't quite solved, and I want to take a smaller one out first. But this would be part of that question. So yeah, it's a very good question. And, uh, um, and I don't have the answer, although I think I've got the idea of what the problems are. <laughs>